Brian, Brian's studying and praying about possibly becoming a pastor and getting into ministry, and uh, he's taking some Schofield classes, right? Yeah. And Lacey's my sister, so uh, good job for doing that, being my sister and all. It's, it's, a, it's a big honor. Glad to have you as part of my family. Welcome. Uh, my name's Jesse. If I haven't met you, uh, I'm the, the guy who gets to preach the word here. And we're going to be um, in James uh, this morning. Uh, we're in a series uh, called Faith Works. And so if you would turn to the book of James, great. If you don't have a Bible this morning and you want to follow along and see where we're at, just raise your hand. One of these guys will gladly hand a, a Bible uh, to you, and you can, you can turn to that book and follow along with us. There's a few, few hands over here, too, and one in the back there. Hey, Todd, you want to take care of... Uh, the one in the back. Thanks, buddy. A couple things before we um, dive in. One, just a quick update on on um, how you and I, uh, and as a church, how we can help with what's happened in Paradise uh, and and just what we've been doing there. Uh, we have been funneling money money through our church to those in need. We have um, a church that we partner with in Paradise that is still standing. Uh, most of the people in that church have lost their homes, unfortunately, and so they are trying to navigate what that looks like uh, from here uh, going forward. And then we partner also with a church in uh, Chico called Chico Neighborhood Church, um, and they are housing several uh, people who've lost their homes there. I think over 300 are staying there at their church. They did a combined service last week. Uh, over 2,000 people were in attendance uh, between the Chico Neighborhood Church and the Paradise Alliance Church, and they came together, and um, the pastor of Paradise Alliance preached a message there and and um, just some hope, and we're really praying for them and stuff. So if you want to partner, what we've been doing is there's a couple different ways you can help. One is if you give to us directly, we'll fund those, we'll fund those funds to those two uh, churches and those families in need that they can help their own. Or if you go online, uh, whether it's uh, Constant Contact, if you don't have that, you can go to sbctrucky.com right now. Sign up for the newsletter at the bottom of the webpage. Um, but we get our, there's information in the Constant Contact we sent you this week. There's information on Facebook, and there's information on the Instagram page, uh, as well as Twitter, all of the social media stuff that's out there. There are links. So you don't have to give to us. Uh, we don't care if the money comes to us. We want the money to go to people who are in need. So uh, there's an option there to give directly to the district, um, which I sit on the board for the district that oversees 100-plus churches. Uh, or you can give directly uh, to Chico Neighborhood or directly to Paradise Alliance Church through that link as well. So uh, be praying about that and, and how you can help out. And then secondly, <clears throat> this week, um, for the last few years, uh, we have uh, uh, helped fund and give uh, boots to kids in the area in need. And we handed out over 150 pairs uh, of boots to the community this week. We've got several more we're going to hand out. Uh, and so thank you. So, so several of you, you know, in the room, you're not just visiting for Thanksgiving. This is your church. And we know and we recognize that, that you give to this church and you're part of our family and you help those things happen. And so uh, I just want to take an opportunity uh, for you family members that, that are involved. Thank you for doing that. Uh, thank you for helping us do ministry at SBC and for helping people in need. And we want to continue to do that. And obviously your, your, uh, your generosity uh, helps accomplish those goals. Amen? Um, and then uh, also as an update too, Brad and Pam are gone, which means, um, which, which means I, I am not nearly as organized as I normally would be. I don't even have slides this week because uh, I forgot to do them. And, um, but they're visiting family, and 
uh, Brad and Pam, uh, their, uh, their son, uh, Nick, and his wife, Lindsay, just gave uh, birth to a brand new baby boy. He was born last night. And so Brad and Pam are grandparents for the first time ever, which is pretty cool. So be praying for them. Pretty neat. Um, James chapter 3, verse 13. If you're visiting, we, um, we, we have a tradition here because we care greatly about God's word that we stand for the reading of Scripture. And so I invite you, if you're able to this morning, to please stand as we read from James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. The title of the message this morning is Wisdom from Above, Wisdom from Below. And I want, in context, to bring you back to a few weeks ago, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, where James uh, gives us one of the most thorough instructions on the power of, the, of words and the power of the tongue. And so I want you to think about that in light of the fact that now James comes into this portion of wisdom, and he says this, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual demonic. For jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Lord, we invite you into the room this morning knowing that you are not in need of our invitation. But Lord, our hearts are in need of being reminded that we have to open up to let you in. So we ask you to do work in us this morning. Not a work maybe by our own initiative, but a work by your initiative. A work that you and you alone can do. And we trust you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, wisdom... We've talked about it a little bit a few weeks back when we were in James chapter 1, but we're going to add to that teaching. Wisdom is, if we define it, wisdom is the ability. It's the ability to take what you know, the knowledge that you have, and then to put it into action. James says, faith without works is dead. So he says you have to work out your faith. You have to actually do something. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Whoever is wise and understanding among you, show by good conduct. Put it into action. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but, but life has become more complicated as time has gone by. Uh, we, wisdom, wisdom is the ability to, to know what to choose in any given situation. And, and we live now in a day and age where, where really your options are just, they're amazing. Take for instance, I remember when I was a young man, a uh, young, young little kid, I'd get up on a Saturday morning, and Saturday morning was amazing because it meant you didn't have to get out of your pajamas, and, and you, could, you could go downstairs, and you could turn on the television, and you could put on some good Looney Tunes. But those were the good days, man, I'm telling you. Like, I, long, I long for the simplicity of childhood where you, 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 it's okay to eat cereal all day, wear pajamas, and watch Looney Tunes and do nothing else, right? And no one would fault you. Now, I remember thinking back, thinking back though, like, like I, I still have a recollection of having a television that, that didn't have a remote. You had to actually turn the knob. Some of you are young enough, you're like, what? Yeah, a knob. 
you had to touch something. You didn't have to, like now you say, Alexa, put on this. And she goes, okay, and she puts it on. You didn't have to touch anything anymore. And and, uh, going from that place, someone was reminding me this morning about um, about how, how for me, when I got up, there was only a couple channels to choose from. That knob didn't go on for eternity. And there was a time, listen to this, I remember hearing this thinking, this is crazy. There was a time where there was really only one or two channels, and the television stopped working at 8 p.m. What kind of world was that? Like the TV was like, they're like, all of a sudden, like, no more content. We're done. Now, now, not only do you have maybe direct TV with all of its options, you have Netflix with all of its options. You may not only have Netflix, you might also have Hulu. And if you don't have Hulu, you have Amazon Prime, or you might have all three. Where now you sit down and go, what do you want to watch? And you spend 30 to 45 minutes just trying to figure out what to watch. Oh, nah, I don't want to watch that. We become more picky. Eh, I don't want to watch that. To the point where there have been literally, like, literally times where, like, Allie and I have sat down to watch something, perused for long enough, where we look at each other and go, want to go to bed? <laughs> I do. And let's, let's go. Now, I say this because, because wisdom is the ability to actually put into practice that which you know. Our problem as a society and as a culture right now is we know a lot if you disagree or you're questioning anything that I say this morning, you have the ability to Google a statement or a particular statement of truth within a matter of moments to actually fact check to see if it's true or not. In fact, how many of you have entered in a conversation of disagreement with your spouse or a friend about a particular issue, and so you've decided to go, well, we'll just ask Google. And so you Google it, and if only one of you has your phone on and, and Google disagrees with you, you go, mm, the internet's not working. I don't have a signal. You laugh because you've done it. We don't know how to put into, into practice that which we know. Now, as we dive into this issue of wisdom from above and wisdom from below, remember that James is continually pulling from two major resources in the Bible. He's pulling from the wisdom literature of Proverbs, and he's pulling from the Sermon on the Mount. He's quoting a lot of what comes from Jesus' mouth in Matthew chapter 5 and onward. Now, let me share something in regards to Proverbs that's important. Proverbs is considered the wisdom literature book of the Old Testament, that along with two other books in the Old Testament. We just highlight Proverbs here for a moment. Proverbs, when it talks about wisdom, assumes a couple different things. And what I mean by this is that those those who read the Old Testament, the the Jewish audience in which was reading it, understood something that was just a a basic premise, a fact that they knew that that Proverbs never even touches upon because the writer of Proverbs assumes you know it, so they don't teach it to you. What are those assumptions? The first assumption is this. When it talks about wisdom, the first assumption that Proverbs doesn't have to ever mention because it assumes the audience knows it is that God is for God. That God is for God. What do I mean by that? Proverbs is assuming that when you read the book, that you're not assuming that God is just for you. What's my point? The point is, Proverbs and the rest of the Bible is teaching when it comes to wisdom that you understand you aren't the point. You're not number one. God is the point. James touches upon this in this passage. It's assuming when you're thinking about wisdom, so so again, to define wisdom a little bit more for you this morning, wisdom defined by the Jewish audience is to live skillfully. It's to live skillfully. To live a life, another way to put it, to live a life 
that's poetic or to have an artistic life. One of the assumptions that, that Proverbs understands, before I dive into this, another assumption it makes is that there is a right way to live and there is a wrong way to live. It assumes that you know that that is an important thing, that you just know that. There, there's a foolish way to live and a wise way to live. Why is that important? Because society doesn't teach you that. Society teaches you, live how you want to live. There is no wrong way of living. There's only doing what pleases you. Are you with me this morning? So it assumes that you know there are foolish people and there are wise people. All of us know people, some of you are in the room, you just make bad decisions all the time. We all have those, we have that friend. At least we have that one friend, right? Like, man, they cannot make a good decision to save their life. And then all of us have that one friend that's like, man, everything you do works. Why? And it comes down to wisdom. So, so it assumes, first point, it assumes in regards to wisdom, there is a right way to live and a wrong way to live. It also assumes this. God is for God. Back to that point. It's not about you. The Bible's not about you. The Bible is about God. It's about glorifying God. We're going to add to this here in a moment, but I want to quote a pastor. He says this about, about the reality of why this is so unpopular. Again, culture doesn't teach you that God is for God or God is for his glory. Culture teaches you that life's about you. Everything's about you. Here's the quote. This pastor says, I want to be the point. When I walk into my house after work, I want to be the point. I want my life to be like, oh, baby, I'm sure you've had a tough day, boo. Here's dinner. I got you steak right here. The kids are, are put away. They're gone. You, you don't have to worry about them. I didn't get rid of them because I know every once in a while you like to play with them. But for tonight, they're gone. Don't worry. It's me, food, you. It's all about you. Is there a game you'd like to watch? Hey, what can I do to make you happy tonight? I want that. When I come to work, I want that. When I'm driving my car, I'm like, get out of the way. It's my road. I want it all to revolve around me. I am uppermost in my own affections. I want it to be about me. My heart wants it to be about me. And our Western culture does nothing but reinforce this. Every commercial I see says it's about me and my happiness. There's no room for suffering, no room for loss, no room for pain. It's about me. So Proverbs never even touches upon it because Proverbs assumes that you understand that God is for God and that it isn't about you. Let's, let me take a point that, that's really interesting here so you can understand how emphatic the Bible is about this. Whenever I do a memorial service, inevitably the passage that is shared almost 100% of the time is Psalm chapter 23. And in Psalm 23, it reads like this. Listen carefully. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Sounds like me, doesn't it? I don't want to have want. I mean, in fact, Christmas is coming. Check out my Amazon list. It's full. He makes me lie down in green pastures. What a good God. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. So far, so good. Right? Then it goes on and it says this. For his namesake. Why, why does God want to be your shepherd? Why does he want to make it so you don't want? Why does he want to lay, help you lie down in green pastures? Because it's for his namesake. God is for God. Again, another quote says, the more your life is about you, this is why this is important, the more that your life is about you, the more miserable of a human being you're going to be. 
The more you make it about you, the more miserable you're going to be. Do you want to be? Do you want a miserable marriage? Be uppermost in your own affections in your home. Do you want a strained, if not a full-on fractured relationship with your children? Be uppermost in your own affections. Do you want to be despised in the workplace? Then just be the point of everything. So Proverbs doesn't even have to explain to us this reality. The Bible, for the most part, doesn't even explain to this just pointedly. It it assumes that you understand that God is for God, that there's a right way to live, there's a wrong way to live, and God is for God. He is zealous for his own glory. He is zealous to be seen good, which leads us to an important, important point that adds to this. The reason this is important is because you are the happiest and most filled with joy when you are living life the way that God designed it to be lived. See, God has set it up. It would seem really selfish if God stood before you and said, worship me. Just worship me. Why? Because I'm God. I made you worship me. It's not selfish if you understand God says, worship me. Why? Because it's, it's how I designed you to be happy. And if you don't make me number one, you're not going to be happy. You're going to lose your joy. So, so what's important about this is, is that if you, if you wrap your mind around this, Everything can begin to start making sense. So, so an example of this is what I just mentioned earlier, the Paradise Fires. If you, if you are thinking in a fleshly way, in a way of wisdom from below, you can't make sense of such devastation and loss. When you lose it all, if you're not keeping in the mind frame of God's overall plan, none of it's going to make any sense. But God, who sees, and you'll see this here in a moment, I'll add to this from Scripture so you can see it. If, if you understand that God sees things from an eternal perspective, not just in the perspective of day, if you lose your home right now, it's easy for you to just sit there and think, my home is gone, I don't know if God is good, why would he allow such destruction? But what that doesn't remove is that if God is for God, how, wait a minute, maybe, maybe God knows something that I don't know. And that somehow he's good enough to take something so devastating, so dark, and so unexplainable that he's going to turn it into something beautiful. Maybe he can do that. And if you doubt that he can do that, if you doubt he's that kind of God, we go back to the cross and we see God who sent God to die for our sins. So we can't doubt that he's good because he took on our eternal punishment. He took our guilt. He took our shame. He took it all right there on the cross. That's why it's in the room to remind us that God is good. So now we come to this place and we go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't understand. That's right, because you're not the point. God's the point. And so we can take comfort that somehow in the midst of loss, trial, and tribulation, God's going to do something good. As I shared with a friend last night, in fact, God has a way of using loss, great loss and great pain, to bring amazing resurrection. So that's just what he assumes. That's what Proverbs assumes. And now we, as a church, have to combat that. We have to share it. We have to teach it emphatically because because we don't live in a society that in any way says that God is for God and life is not about me. You are constantly being preached to by the world and society that life is about you. So when something goes wrong, you inevitably fall completely apart, and then you look up and you go, why? Right? So then, 
With that understanding, let's look at what the text says about wisdom from below. Wisdom that doesn't come from God. Now, when you be, one of the things, before I dive into this, it's going to tie in here, you'll see, that you have to understand is what we, what we teach is if someone, who, if someone doesn't know Jesus, if somebody has not made a faith proclamation to follow God, the God of the Bible, the, the one who died for your sins, what the Bible teaches and what we say is, if you've made a choice to not follow Jesus, you only have one enemy. Okay, so if you're in the room and you don't believe in Christ, let me just first of all say, I'm really glad you're here. I don't think there's any better place that you should be. And if someone invited you, they invited you because they really love you. So thank you for being here. But with that said, if you don't believe, the Bible would teach you that that you have one enemy, and that one enemy, the one enemy is God himself. The the words that the New Testament uses is enmity. What it means is that that God has created life, a, a DNA to life, a fabric to life that's to be lived, and not live it according to God is to live against that fabric. And so in essence, you're, you're finding life difficult because you're always pushing against an immovable object, right? the immobility of God. Now, with that said, if, you're, if you then make the, the conscious decision to make a faith proclamation to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, once that occurs, you become born again, the Bible says. You become new. Your sins are washed away. You're now in a walking relationship with the God who made the galaxies and the universe. You're in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ who forgave you of your sin. You've been atoned for. You've been made justified. All of these great biblical words that we love to use, which some of us are like, I don't know what it means. It just means you are loved by God. And now you're walking with him. Now when that occurs, and for some of you this morning, my prayer would be that that, that would occur this morning. That some of you would make the faith, the faith proclamation to not live according to the wisdom of the world, but according to the wisdom of the Bible, the wisdom of Jesus Christ, that you would fall in love with God himself. And in doing so, now you move from one enemy to what we theologically now say, three. Might seem like a bad trade. What are those three? Now again, theologically standing, we, we describe those three enemies like this. One you now receive the world as an enemy. What do I mean by that? I mean that the Bible says very clearly that the world is run by a kind of system, an anti-God system. And the more radical you are in regards to your faith in the secular world, the more opposition you will feel from the secular world. Right? If you stand up for God's ways, the world will push against you. And the world is constantly saying, don't live according to the Bible. Live according to your own emotions and feelings. So the world itself, the system of the world itself, just feels against you. That's number one. Number two, your flesh. This is the part every Christian just bemoans and struggles with, no matter how long you've been saved. The reality that you've been been born again spiritually, but you're still filled in a flesh suit. You still have skin on you. You still have temptation. And, and every now and then, somebody does cut you off on the road, and your first words aren't, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> There's no person who doesn't struggle with those kind of things. It's back to, to that point of what the pastor said earlier. Down deep, I want to be the point. I do. All of us do. That, that selfishness isn't ingrained in us, but as Christians, we're constantly combating that. We're mortifying it, John Owen says. The flesh, and then thirdly, the devil itself. 
the devil himself, the spiritual realm and principalities. There, there is a spiritual realm, and that spiritual realm is now against you. Satan wants to take you down. Satan wants to take our church down. You should be praying for me, please. You should be praying for our pastors, our leaders, our elders, and our deacons, because what God is doing in our community through this church is really quite amazing. And we shouldn't take it for granted. With that said, the satanic realm is aware of it, wants to destroy it. So, good news, if you aren't a Christian, you only have one enemy. If you are a Christian, you have three. But even better news, if you are a Christian, if God is for you, who can be against you? Now, why do I mention those three enemies? Because James mentions them in a little bit different verbiage in verse 15. That wisdom from below is earthly, that's the world, unspiritual, that's the flesh, and the devil, that's demonic. So what James says is if you want to live a life that has bitter jealousy in it, as he says here, selfish ambition, and that leads to disorder and chaos and every vile practice, then live this way. Live according to the earthly measure of things. What does that mean? It means that when you come across a decision or you come across some kind of great loss or some kind of great difficulty, you measure the decision not in the terms of heaven, not in the terms of eternity, not in terms of the 10,000-year mark, but just the here and now. See, the wisdom, the earthly wisdom, this is the kind of thing that leads to death. This is the kind of thing that causes men to leave their spouses. It's, it's the kind of wisdom that is limited to the present material world. It's limited to that which you can theorize and discover. There's no room for faith in earthly wisdom. There's just what you know, which leads to the unspiritual part that James speaks of, which is the flesh. What he's literally saying is this is to live life according to one statement, the flesh, the sensual. Another way to put it that, that is really common in our day and age, if it feels good, do it. Is that not the mantra? Is that not the motto? The Bible is essentially saying, <laughs> no! Right? Because, because if, you, if you follow this, this kind of thinking, then, then you might be a man. You've been married for several years. You've got a couple kids. And man, life with kids is, is it can be difficult. Okay, I've got four little ones. Come 8 p.m., it's bedtime. Come 9.30, I am negotiating with teeny little terrorists. I will give you a helicopter. Just go to bed. It's hard. And then, and then you go to work, and you've got a secretary. She's okay looking, and she tends to just make your day feel well and good, and she makes you feel valuable, and it's not stressful. And then all of a sudden, over time, it doesn't happen overnight, over time, that relationship begins to form. You feel good, and then you make a decision. That decision to cheat on your spouse, and to destroy everything that down deep you truly value. See, to, to live earthly, to live in the flesh, is to lead not towards truth, but to, to follow lies, which is demonic. That's the third point here. Earthly is wisdom. I measure only, I measure only life by what I see and know and feel and touch right here and now. Unspiritual, if it feels good, I do it. And demonic, I'm believing lies. I'm choosing to believe that this promise that the world is presenting to me is somehow going to make me happy. 
And not to put my Teen, teen Challenge guys uh, on the spot, but they shared their testimonies last week. The lie that they bought at some point in life is that drugs and alcohol will somehow fulfill and satisfy. Only to find out they don't. Money doesn't satisfy. Sex will not satisfy. Nothing will satisfy you except to be in that connected relationship with Jesus Christ. Something eternal, something lifelong, something that's not measured in the earthly world, but measured in the heavenly world. That somehow, someway, the darkest things that we experience in this life will be used by a good God for good things. Another pastor says this in regards to thinking along the lines of your own flesh. Very true statement. He says, no one has betrayed you like you have. No one has deceived you like you. In reality, who has harmed you more than you have? If you say to me, well, you don't know my family, I don't have to know your family. You don't know mine, but I can tell you this. Your response to your family has probably done just as much damage as whatever your family has done to you. You got to give your old man a break. He did the best he could with where he was. Where he was. Who has betrayed you more than you have? No one. No one has lied to you like you lie to you. No one has deceived you more than you've deceived you. You are awful to yourself. It's earthly, and it's rooted only in the here and now. See, at times, you and I, when we are making decisions, we don't, <laughs> just be honest, when was the first time or when was the last time when you made a major decision, whether it was buying a car, marrying a particular person, dating a particular person, you went to this passage and asked for God's wisdom. And you just acknowledge, God, I don't want to think like the world. I don't want to measure my spouse the way that the world measures women or men. I don't want to measure my decision based on what I'm feeling because I know that my feelings can lead me down a path to destruction. Is that true for anyone here this morning? Many of us just say, yeah, I, I've done some things that I thought it just felt good. And so, so I did it, and now, now I, am, I am reaping consequences to stuff, man. This is, this, is like, like, this is like youth ministry 101 right here. You're trying to tell a 16-year-old kid, don't follow your feelings. But they're so strong. I know, that's why you got to say no to them now. If you feel like doing anything, don't do it. Just sit in your room, turn off the lights, do nothing. <laughs> it's the wisest thing you can do right now. If you get hungry, I'll slip something under your door. <laughs> the Bible says in regards to Satan, who, who is the enemy of the Christian, that he is the father of lies. He's been doing it all the way from Genesis, lying telling you that certain things are going to make you feel good. As, as Satan said to Eve, did God really say that? Did God really give you an excuse? Like, no, seriously, he didn't say, don't worry about it. God knows that if you do this, you're going to have the knowledge of good and evil. He, he's actually trying to hinder you from being happy. He lied to them, and Adam and Eve followed the serpent. And again, the text tells us that some of this stuff leads to jealousy, Selfish ambition, the text says. This is that part of the flesh where we realize what he's saying, what James is combating against is the statement I, I said earlier. Life is not about you. And what's hard about this, again, is because it's, it's constantly being pushed at you, constantly being pushed at you. That when you hear that life isn't about you, most, most of us naturally probably go, 
I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. Is anyone a little confused this morning? Don't, you don't have to admit it. Because even for me, there's times where I think, man, it, it is. But then you look at Jesus, and Jesus says, if you live the Christian life, it's a life of service. It's a life of washing disciples' feet. You see, see what we have in our world is we have this immediate, this immediate gratification. We've got we've to go immediately. If you, if you ever want to go and see a room, a room filled with fools, just filled with them, you can digitally do it on Facebook. I'm not kidding. I, I now have to talk about this just for a moment because, remember, James, it's in context. Chapter 3 is about the mouth. And what you have on Facebook and what you have on social media is you've got a lot of foolish people doing this. And they're talking and they're ranting and they're trying to communicate. And so what does James say? James says, listen, you want to see real wisdom? Wisdom, whoever's wise and understanding, let him show by his good conduct. Right? So somehow in our, our society, we've come across this lie that if you tweet something out, you're going to make a difference. You're not. That's a good, surefire way to not make a difference. You want to make sure you don't make any, any difference at all? No change for society? No health? Then tweet about it or Facebook it. Make sure no one's listening. How? Just put it on Facebook. No one cares. It's just a bunch of idiots yelling. And some of you are convicted because you're, like, you, you're that guy or you're that girl. And I would respond back again with James. It says, if you want to be wise, you want to make a difference, and I'm taking this back into James 3 again, where he says, the, the mouth has the ability to direct your whole life. You want your life to be directed in a healthy manner? Then show by good deeds. How should you then do those deeds, he says? With meekness. You want to make a difference in the world? Show up on a Saturday and hand out boots to kids who need shoes. You want to make a difference? Don't, don't just tweet that we're sending money to Paradise Chico, but actually actually go to Chico Neighborhood Church, fill out the Google form, and go serve somebody. Go love them. Go actually sit down and say, man, I'm sorry for your loss. Is there anything I can do for you? You know what they're going to say? No. They're going to say no. Because in our culture, we're, we don't know how to necessarily even ask for help. And maybe it's legitimate no, maybe it's not. But then you can do something that probably not very many people have done. Represent the presence of God, wrap your arm around them, and then pray for them. What those people need to know is that God is not distant. God is very present in the midst of their struggle. So again, this kind of, this kind of wisdom, it, James says, it's filled with disorder, confusion. It's vile in its practice. And it doesn't lead to your happiness and your joy. Don't talk about things. Actually do them. James is not letting go. You've got to love it in context. He says, faith without works, faith without works is dead. He's hammering the point home here now. He's saying, listen, if you're really a Christian, don't talk so much. Do more. Serve more. Love more. Just, just, just do society a favor and delete your Facebook account. Seriously. And again, the point being is that, man, that thing, social media is designed to suck your time and to suck your joy from you. And every now and then you need, you need someone like me to just come into the room with a baseball bat and knock you silly a little bit just to help remind you the world is not going to lead to your gratification. 
the way the world does things is not going to lead to your happiness. It's not going to help you become a better father. It's not going to help you mother your children well. It's not going to make you a good student. It's not going to make you a good grandson. It's not going to make you a good Christian. You have to find those things in the presence of Jesus Christ. So now we get to the wisdom from above. What is this wisdom from above? Does anybody need more wisdom in their life again? Anybody? Anybody? All right, 25 people. And you're the ones that we'll build the kingdom on, right? (laughs) The rest of you need to show up next week. Keep coming. Don't stop coming. Keep coming. Wisdom from above, James says. And this passage is first pure. Notice the contrast. It's It's not evil. It doesn't have vile practice in it. It's pure. Pure literally means free from defilement. Another way to say this is is that you're cleansed and you're now free of shame and guilt. Wisdom from above does not have shame and does not have guilt. So when when you make a decision and then you implement that decision, you don't walk away feeling guilty or shame filled. This is an interesting point about guilt. I was in a a meeting with some missionaries in Incline Village and a couple other pastors. And we're talking about this particular, uh, this group that that is actually involved in... um, basically adopting and freeing kids in Asia and other places around the world from sex trafficking and bringing them into homes, foster homes, where they're actually now receiving family and stuff like that. And he was sharing, the missionary who was doing this, he was sharing how each culture has a way of getting its people to respond and do things in regards to living life. And he said in Asia, for instance, Asia is, is by the, for the most part, a shame-based culture. Some of you probably heard that before. That, that, that shame gets you to fit in with the hierarchy of family. It gets you to fit in with the company that you're going to work for. It, everything about it like, helps you fit into that society. And unfortunately, it's shame. And he said, he said in America, he says, we're, guilt, we're a guilt-based culture. And then the pastor across the room says, I disagree with that. Now I'm here in the meeting like, oh, this is good. This is going to be great. And, and, and he said, I don't agree with you because... He says, we don't have guilt. We justify everything. And then the missionary guy said, exactly. Justification is a response to guilt. And what we do in America is we, we feel guilty, and then we justify the action, and we, it's okay, it's good. Everybody's doing it. I have heard from men in our church, from men in our church who have justified to their spouses, justified to them why viewing pornography is okay for them. Now, remember the statement earlier, Proverbs assumes, life is not about you. What does pornography teach you? It's all about you, bud. It's all about you. No one's more important than you. And it's a lie. Right? And, that, and so that, I don't say that to, to guilt and shame the men in the room who, who deal with that, because statistically, here's the reality in this room. Many of you fit in the category. Now, the problem, the, problem, the problem isn't just the fact that you're viewing pornography. The problem, the problem comes in when you are justifying the sin and you're trying to remove the guilt. What you have forgotten is that Jesus died for your sins to free you from such defilement, to free you from your shame, and to free you from your guilt. You are cleansed. Wisdom from above is understanding that you are pure in God's eyes. And when you recognize you're pure in God's eyes, you will do anything and everything you can to not be defiled again. Do you see the order in which it 
proceeds. It isn't this. It isn't this, guys. It isn't this, ladies. It isn't, oh my gosh, I feel guilty and shame. I have to repent to get rid of guilt and shame. It isn't that. Because if you're doing that, you're somehow entering into a transaction relationship with God. I feel guilt and shame, therefore I'll go to church and I won't feel guilt and shame. Nope. If you understand what Jesus has done for you, guilt and shame has been removed. So you no longer respond against something you're responding because you have it. Here's the reality, guys. And I didn't do this in the first service, so for whatever reason the Spirit's doing it now, that's the reason. We're just going to go with it. If you really want to defeat pornography or any other sin in your life, it's to understand this reality first. You are not going to discipline yourself out of your sin. You are going to believe yourself out of sin. The reality is, guys, those of you in the room who have dealt with this particular issue, Jesus still sees you as pure. Would you wrap your mind around that for a moment? And that isn't just for the guys, that's for anybody in this room who's dealing with some kind of guilt and condemnation. The gospel says that you have been cleansed. You are pure, and you will respond and make good decisions when you realize what James is saying. You are pure to me. Jesus still wants a relationship with you. You may feel dirty and disgusting, and Jesus is standing there saying, I want to have coffee with you. I want to have a meal with you. I want you to be a part of my church. Isn't that good? Isn't that amazing? Because here's the deal. Some of you are like, I don't, well, I don't have any sin. I don't have, I'm not dealing with pornography. I don't have alcohol. I don't have any of those problems. Well, now you have arrogance. <laughs> and Jesus still wants a relationship with you as well. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus says from Sermon of the Mount, for they shall see God. The pure in heart is a reality that Jesus has made upon you. You may be struggling with something, and that doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. And then the next addition to this, which is, remember, he says the enemy, the wisdom from below, is the devil. And the devil is constantly lying to you. So Philippians says, in regards to purity, this is the response for us in the room. Philippians 4, 8. After it talks about peace, and there's a theme of peace in this passage, if you notice, that James is bringing up. After speaking about peace, he says this in Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard in me, then practice. That's wisdom. Then practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The Bible gives the instruction. It says, listen, listen, you want to make sure that you're not walking around with shame and guilt? The solution is for you to hold your head high and to meditate and think about all of the things that are lovely and good in the world. When you lose something, you're not to bemoan losing it. You are to pray. You are. I realize this as a, as a young man a few years back. I realized I was, I was naturally a pessimist. Anybody else in the room like me this morning, you're just naturally a pessimist. Oh, you're lying. Nobody raised their hand. They're like, okay, I'm naturally a pessimist. You're like, well, I'm a Christian. I'm I'm an optimist. Right? The pessimist, glass half empty. Optimist, glass half full. 
And all of us have a tendency to kind of lean towards any situation, whatever it is, whatever happens, whatever decisions before, we, we tend to look at it either we're really optimistic, and we all know those people are like really, really optimistic. I find you really annoying, but it's okay. It's, and then, and then the, the pessimistic people, and I'm like, I relate to you, I get you. And I realized, though, God convicted me. And he said, Jesse, it's not half full. That's what he told me. It's not half full. It's not half empty. You believe in Jesus Christ. It's overflowing, friend. The cup is constantly overflowing. There isn't half full. There isn't half empty. There's just always good. God is good. And, the, and that is the light of the world. That's how you become salt and light. That in no matter what situation you're in, you're always sharing with people, God is good. God is good. God is good. God is good. Oh, I don't know if he's good. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Remember the gospel. Remember your sin. Remember the distance that you had. And some of you, some of you have gone all this week, and man, you've just been beat up. Satan's been lying to you, and he's been pointing his finger at you, and he's been telling you, you're not good enough, you're not worthy, you shouldn't go to church, you shouldn't serve, you shouldn't be involved in any kind of ministry, you shouldn't share the gospel with your friends, because they're going to tell, man, you are a fake, and you're a phony. And then finally, you're like, man, some of you are like, I just got to drag my butt to church in hopes that God's going to do or say something to me to lift my spirits. Some of you are here to get a, just a cold drink after a very dehydrating week. Now, give me Jesus, please. And hopefully this morning you're receiving that. And some of us just need that reminder in our situations. God is precious. And even more so, it says that God finds us precious in his sight. That he loves you. You are pure. And I'm saying these things because this, this is the solution to your problem. To think upon all of that which is good within Jesus Christ. To think about all of the things. But... but you don't know, man, I'm, my, my marriage is falling apart. My, my kids are unruly. I lost my house. I know. Let's not measure things in 10, 20, 50 years. Let's measure them in eternity. Right now, Jesus said, when he said, listen, guys, hey, I got to leave you. You imagine seeing a guy die, get buried for three days. You think he's gone. And then he comes out of the grave and says, just kidding. And you're like, oh my gosh, he is the Messiah. And then he says, he says, okay, I'm leaving. What? You, we just lost you. We can't lose you again. But don't go. No, 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 it's good. It's good that I'm leaving. What do you mean it's good? Well, see, if I leave, I'm going to give you the helper. You see, if I'm, if I'm in my physical form, I can only be in one place. But if I leave, I can send you my helper and indwelling in every believer will be myself. I'll dwell within each person that calls upon my name. Oh, 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 and, and, I don't know if you know this, I'm a carpenter. I got to build you a mansion. I'll see you when you get there. He's preparing a place for us. Right now. We're out, we're down here going, why is it so hard? He's up there going, if only they knew. <laughs> this is why Paul says that the, the trouble that he's dealing with in life just pales in comparison to the promises of eternity. And when you, when you lose something massive in your life, yeah, it hurts and it stings and that's okay, but it pales in comparison to the glory that you'll receive when you get to heaven. This is, this is wisdom, which then leads, I don't have time for all of it, but it leads to, to the fact that it's peaceable and it's gentle. How gentle are you? Not rough, 
but gentle. Again, pulling from the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Again, we don't change the world as Christians. Listen carefully, because, you know, from my standpoint as, as, as the lead pastor here at this church, part of my goal is to shape culture within our church in hopes that it will shape culture in the Truckee Tahoe Basin that, that more people will actually really find Jesus to be what he really is, extremely beautiful and worthy of praise. And so when I share some of these things, I'm, I'm sharing them in hopes that, that not only I would practice them, but as saints in the community, as light in the community, you would go out and you would make an impact in people's lives that they would be saved from, from the one enemy they don't want, which is God, and then they would inherit three other enemies, but that's okay because God's for them. And, and part of sharing the gospel is to be gentle. It's to be tender. As Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, for I'm gentle and lowly of heart. We share the gospel with gentleness. We love people when we go to the hospital with gentleness. We love people when we're selling a home with gentleness. When we're doing gardening, we do it with gentleness. When we hang out with people, we're gentle. We don't, we don't moan and we don't complain and we don't rant on social media. That's not what we do as Christians. That's not what we do as servants of Jesus Christ. We wash dirty feet because it brings joy to us. And when the community sees that, they're going to say, you know what, I don't know, I don't know if I believe what you're preaching, but I do think that there's something there, man. There's something there. Now, we've had several people since Trunk or Treat and the Boots and stuff, we've had several people in the community who've said, nobody, a guy that's friends with Brad, not a Christian, said nobody puts on a better Halloween event than Sierra Bible Church. We love you guys for doing that. And you know what? They haven't walked in the building yet. But they're showing up to church. And that what they're receiving is all in the name of Jesus Christ. And you have people go, wait a minute, wait a minute, it's the devil's day. It's the devil's day, what are you doing? We're redeeming it. Every day is God's day. Dressing up is not sinful. We don't worship Satan. We worship Jesus. So we're creating a safe environment where someone who would never come to this church property and they walk on and they build relationships with all these wacky Christians who are lined up up and down to deal and they're getting candy in Jesus' name and they walk away and they go, you know, I don't know what's going on here, but these people are really nice. There's something's wrong over here. Something's weird. Well, you know what? We need to probably show up on a Sunday and see what's going on. And then they walk in the door and they see more of the same individuals in the community who actually love Jesus Christ. And then every now and then you're going to have people who are going to say to you, right? They're going to say, they're going to say, I don't go to church and I don't believe in Jesus because Christians are hypocrites. Yeah, we are. The difference is we're admitting it. Everybody's a hypocrite. Welcome to a room where you can admit that you're not okay and you're a hypocrite and that you can't save yourself. Welcome to a place where you can finally find reconciliation with the God who made you and designed you and now is saying to you, you want to you have a life that will leave behind a fruit of righteousness, it says. Remember Psalm 23, goodness and mercy will follow me the days of my life. We can have a kind of life that echoes into eternity because one day you're not going to be here because you're not the point. Jesus is the point. One day I won't be here and I feel a deep conviction in my heart to preach the certain kind of things that I preach because one day I'm not here. One day there will be probably people who don't remember that Jesse Richardson existed. But the one thing I can do is leave behind the name of Jesus Christ so that when I'm gone, 
that whoever stands here is still preaching the goodness of God's words in the person of Jesus. So we have to do a job. We have a job as elders and pastors to tell you as a church, accept nothing less. Accept nothing less. There is no hope for us living our lives outside of Christ. The last one on the list before we close I want to share here is impartial. James is going back to the rich man earlier. If a rich man comes into a room and you say, sit here, and a poor man comes in and you tell him to sit on the floor, you become impartial, you become a judge. What James is saying is, is someone who's, who's wise doesn't view life the way the world does. Someone who's wise when they're making decisions doesn't say, well, what's going to make me the most money? What's going to get me in contact with the coolest people? But one thing I pray for is like, like you know, yeah, like God wants to save cool people, whatever cool is. I've lost touch with that a long time ago. Now I have kids to remind me of it. He wants to save those that are cool, but he, he also, he, he is just bent on saving people that are broken. God is bent on saving the loser. He's just bent on it. And, and so, so there's this impartiality that we have. We don't, we don't judge from exterior. We, we look and we say, listen, if, if someone who's Hispanic comes in, they're going to get the gospel, they're going to receive help. If they're white, they're going to get the same gospel and the same help. We don't have impartiality. Every race, every culture, every status, whatever the culture says, forget all about that. There, is, there should be no one more inclusive than the church of Jesus Christ. Like, shame on society and shame on the church for thinking that they have a message that we've had forever. And shame on us if we have not done our job to say, listen, listen, man, are you Hispanic? You, you, you can be part of God's kingdom. Are you white? So can you. Are you black? Yeah, you too. Asian? Yep. Are you rich? Yeah, you can be part of this. Poor? Yeah. Alcoholic? Yep. Drug addict? Yep. Deal with porn? Yep. 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 Is there anybody who can't come? No, everybody can come. Well, how should they come? Come as you are. Well, wait a minute. They need to dress nice first. No, they don't. Just come. Come to Jesus Christ as you are. And the result of this, it says, the result is good fruit and a harvest of righteousness. Harvest. That God will leave blessing behind blessing behind blessing from each person that you impact. So how do you get this wisdom? I just want to close with these thoughts, okay? If some of you are like, man, that sounds really, really good. First of all, Jesus is wisdom personified. So there is no hope to get wisdom if you don't fall in love with Jesus himself. And the first step to receiving that is to, to actually desire and prize wisdom. Proverbs says, prize her highly. The Bible describes wisdom as a beautiful woman. Prize her, value her. You have to value it first. You have to put, put it on a pedestal and say, I want it. And I want to find it in Jesus. Secondly, we go back in context to James chapter 1, verse 5, simply ask for it. Does any of you lack wisdom, he says? Ask. Just ask. And the good news of that, any dumb dumb can ask. Anybody can say, God, give me wisdom. So you desire it, desire it in Jesus, you ask for it, and then lastly, don't talk about it, actually do it. Be obedient to God's words. 
actually do the things that are in Scripture, not because you're going to get anything, but because you've already received it. It's already yours. You already own it. You already possess it. You are pure. You are identified not by your actions, but by Jesus Christ's actions. Wrap your mind in the gospel. Saturate yourself in the reality that Jesus has the ability and has made you pure for those of you that believe. And for those of you in the room on the fence, man, today is the day. Just dive into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I promise you, you will not regret it. There is nothing more beautifully lived than to actually be in an intimate relationship with the God who made the galaxies. What? And sometimes we come to this church and we forget. Those of us who are like really believers, we forget this is an amazing day. We gather together because God himself defeated death on a Sunday. We've got a whole season coming up of gratitude and thanksgiving. We need to be thankful. We've got Christmas season coming up. We need to be ready. You want to know why? Because if there, if there is a time to pray for your church, it is this season because Christmas is going to come up, and I don't know if you know this or not, there are going to be a lot of heathens up in this place. Like, like people, like people who, who think Christianity is only going to church twice a year. Am I right? And you need to be praying for those people. And you not only do you need to be praying for him, you need to be like James and be like, hey, listen, man, uh, I know you probably aren't a big Christian and all, and, and like, this is how I share my faith. <laughs> but you should totally come to church with me on Christmas Eve. Oh, man, I ain't doing that. No, man, come on, I'll pick you up. Oh, now we're getting weird, bro. Like, no, seriously, come. And you're like, well, who do I invite? Think of someone right now. You got them. Man, now you're locked in. You said it before the Lord in your heart, right? Now you got to invite them because you know what's up. Maybe they come, maybe they don't come. Either way, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I am not concerned about filling out the room. I'm not concerned with trying to build a large church. I'm not concerned with that. I just think, I just honestly, honestly think that God wants to use our church to save people who don't know Jesus. The result of that is growth. And we don't know what that looks like. So if we're just really honest, like right now, the last several weeks, last few months as a church, like, first service is full. Second service is full. God wants to save more people. So you start thinking of ideas, because we're open to them, about how we're going to get more people to come in and be discipled according to Jesus Christ. One of the things we've even talked and prayed about, does God want us to plant a church? Does God want Sierra Bible Church to plant a church in Kings Beach or Incline or whatever? We don't know. We don't have the answers. We just know that Jesus wants to save people. We also know that when Jesus is really happening and people are really receiving God, that they're okay with sitting on the floor. So maybe that's the solution. I don't know. I'm starting to sweat a little bit because it's already warm in here. And I start to sweat about thinking about, man, what's it going to look like to be discipling and loving people who are new baby Christians? And I believe that there are some people in this room that God wants to use to do that. So I'm hoping and praying for that. I hope you would pray for it, and we'll just see, we'll just see what happens. You never know. God might, get, might be like, you know what? You guys got a growth problem. And he just makes all of you go somewhere else. God's got weird solutions, and we're okay with it as long as we're continuing to preach the gospel, to preach the Bible, and that Jesus is as good as he truly says he is and claims to be before us. Amen, church? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for another Sunday where we get to gather together and hear the good message from your good word. I pray we leave here, Lord, not with heads down, but with joy filled, eyes up, looking 
eternally upward, Lord, knowing that, that Lord, we don't need more knowledge. We need to put into practice that, what we, that which we know. We pray, Lord, that you would open up the, mind, the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to see truly that we have an inheritance in you that we currently possess right now. Give us the wisdom from above, Lord, and help us combat the wisdom from below. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?